Greetings and welcome to a special episode of The 5 by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. This episode, we welcome new contributor Lydia Ray as she discusses playing Dead of Winter at school. Next, I go to On Mars. Ruth builds an Azul summer pavilion. Luke helps build up Kingsburg. But first, John visits the Technicolor landscapes of Sonora. It's dusk in the desert and the sun hangs just above the horizon, seeming to linger just a moment too long. The last traces of the golden red desert landscape finally give way to a deep and inky purple. In this newly dark world, insects buzz and chirp the same dirge they've practiced since time immemorial. An owl hoots overhead as a giant wooden disc flies across this idyllic landscape and ricochets against a nearby cliff. It careens at a sharp angle, throwing sand dozens of feet into the air as it comes to a stop. You walk up to the disc and notice there's a giant number 5 on top of it. Hi, I'm John Gonzalez. Sonora from designer Rob Newton and publisher Pandasaurus is the world's first flick and write game. At least according to Pandasaurus. But I'll take their word for it, as the game does seem to occupy a very unique corner all by itself. While most people are familiar with games in the roll-and-write genre, games in which players roll dice and use the pit values to mark up their personal player sheets, Sonora ditches the dice in favor of small, wooden discs. Each player in this 1-4 player game receives 5 discs with values ranging from 1-5 through five and their own personal scoring sheet. Players take turns flicking their discs onto the cardboard and plastic playing area, a square frame with a recessed opening that houses a printed play area with 4 quadrants. After each player has flicked their tokens onto the board, players use the values of their own disc in each of the four scoring zones on the corresponding areas on their personal dry erase scoring sheets. Rounds are broken up into two segments, one in which you flick and one in which you write. Game length is up to the players and the rulebook suggests playing five, six, or seven rounds. The four areas of the game board represent four different desert landscapes. Flicking a disc into an area on the board will let you use that disc's value on the corresponding minigame on your scoring sheet. The creek bed area has players marking off squares on a dry creek bed path that branches out from a starting point. So if you're using a disc with a value of 3, you mark off two spaces on the path and then circle the third one, scoring you either the points on the path space or some other bonus. The canyon area of the game lets you use the value on the disc to outline one of six polyomino shapes on a grid that resembles a blank crossword puzzle. Some of the spaces in this zone contain three different cacti and outlining these shapes lets you collect them. At the end of the game, you score points based on how big your cacti sets are. There's also a mud cracks area in which you're using the combined values of your discs to mark off and connect nodes in order to surround cacti icons. These three areas have you working on your own, marking off paths, nodes, and polyomino shapes, and collecting bonus icons that grant you additional ways in which to mark off other minigame zones. So it's possible that outlining a shape in the canyon area will let you work on an entirely different area. The minigames are fun, and having this interconnected relationship between scoring areas lends the game some depth and makes it more interesting. The fourth area in the game is the Cliff Dweller Ruins, in which players compete to be the first to fill out the various groups of hexagon spaces. Having the highest value among all your discs in the cliff scoring area allows you to fill out the hexagons on your sheet first, and this is important because each hexagon group only awards points to the first two players who do so. Also on the game board are areas in which disc values are doubled or multiplied by a factor of two. Like in most roll and write games, there's a good bit of randomness in Sonora. Instead of dealing with dice, you have to contend with player skill and what can get to be an overcrowded board. Often in Sonora, other players will end up knocking other players' discs out of scoring areas that those players really, really needed. I'm looking at you, everyone that I've ever played Sonora with. 
I don't find this level of interaction and randomness to be a detriment to Sonora. It's actually quite nice to see players click with the game after a few shots and start being more strategic in their actions. At the 4 player count, a game of Sonora is often accompanied by all the groans of disappointment and vague threats of retaliation you'd expect from a game where everyone is getting in each other's way. A 2 player game feels like it has a bit more room in which to operate with strategic intent when flicking those discs around. Still, I've found the game to be really interesting and enjoyable at all player counts with the exception of the solo variant. Playing a game of Sonora by yourself involves flicking 3 sets of player discs into the playing area. After you're done flicking these 15 discs, you have a choice of which set to keep, which set your AI opponent scores, and which set gets discarded. Essentially, by flicking so many discs, you're getting in your own way. I often found myself planning to land one set of discs into a certain quadrant, only to accidentally push those discs out of the very area on subsequent turns. It's cool that the solo rules allow you to choose which of the three sets you'll be using to score your own sheet, but the process often felt like playing whack-a-mole in that I was constantly trying to assess and fix the state of the board in order to ensure I got the results I wanted. It felt a bit too taxing for what I feel is a pretty straightforward game at other player counts. My only other quibble is that with four minigames in which to work in, the dry erase sheets that come with the game are a bit on the smaller side. Aside from that, the art and the graphic design are wonderful. The deep red, yellow, and purple landscapes of Sonora remind me of vintage travel posters. Tom Goyon, the illustrator for Sonora, really took what could have been a very dry theme and made it something quite charming and evocative. Sonora will no doubt remain in my collection for a good while. It's unique, it's fun at most player counts, and the art is lovely. For the 5 by I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter and Instagram as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, and welcome to Lydia's Educational Game Corner, where I take a moment to showcase my game of the day and give you tips on how you can use it in your classroom or educational space. Today's game is one of my favorites, Dead of Winter, a crossroads game by Plaid Hat Games. It's designed by Jonathan Gilmore and Isaac Vega, and artists David Richards, Fernanda Suarez, and Peter Walken. Dead of Winter was previously covered by Stephanie in episode 27 and Christy in episode 76. If you want to get more details on how the game is played, check those episodes out. Dead of Winter is a co-op survival game where you work together as a colony to stay alive against the living dead while facing a variety of challenges and crises such as gathering food from the local grocery store or grabbing ammo from the police station to fight against the undead. The goal of the game is to work together to complete a victory, but for each person to achieve victory, they also have to complete their personal secret objective, which could help or ruin the entire operation. The game could end with all players winning, or some winning, and some losers, or all players lose. Lame. I know. Dad of Winter is such a great game to bring into your educational space for a lesson of team building, with this mechanism of it being a cooperative game. But before I get into tips for the classroom, there are a couple of important things to keep in mind before incorporating it into your educational space. First, timing. How long do you have to play and teach this game? Will you have the players learn on their own, or will you teach before you play? Keep in mind the game can run longer than 45 minutes, so you have to make sure you have enough time to be able to teach this to the group. This game will have a hard time to put on a pause unless you mark it with every piece and item you have so you can restart it. If you are short on time, this game may not be for you. Next, the theme. As mentioned above, it is a game with the theme of zombies. It does mention killing zombies and using a variety of weapons to target them. 
based on that information, there are some groups or parents that may not want their children to play this game. Make sure to always get permission before playing a game on the table and also get the feedback from the players if this is a game they would be interested in. Never force a game. You also have to consider age and grade level. Since Dead of Winter is a medium level game and along with the mature theme, this game may be better suited for teenagers, so 13 and up. I would probably do this with a select group of 8th graders that are interested in more strategic games. It is an excellent game to incorporate during Halloween for a spooky experience. And lastly, modifications. Not everyone learns at the level and rate as others. Keep that in mind when introducing this game to players. I would suggest going with the easiest and shortest time frame for scenarios. And also know that there may not be players that are comfortable with playing on their own. Don't be afraid to modify the game to fit the group you are playing with. If you have a player that is worried about playing on their own, why not modify it to make it teams where they can have that support? If someone is not wanting to play as a character, but just wants to be a part of the experience, why not have that person be the person that reads the cards? Hands out wounds, frostbite. I will say it again, never be afraid to modify. There are many roles you can play with Dead of Winter that can include everyone that wants to join. Now, let's talk about how it can be used in your classroom or your own educational space. Not only can board games be fun, but they can also provide a great learning experience for all that play. I'm going to give you a few tips on how you can. I always recommend before teaching any games to develop resources to check for understanding before actually playing the game. Resources such as a vocabulary list of what words they will come across, the mechanisms of the games, or just what they think of Dead of Winter. By having a session zero or the introductory to the game will provide the participants easier comprehension of what they will expect when playing. After doing session zero, now you can truly focus on Dead of Winter assessments that you may have your table do as a group or individually. I am a middle school public speaking and drama teacher, so of course I have to now talk about how it fits with my subject. Dead of Winter has so many opportunities to be in my classroom or others related to it. For example, in the drama classroom, you can use the game as a tool where participants will have to replicate or create their own unique zombie makeup for a stage makeup unit that resembles their player card, or do a character analysis where they create their backstory on the characters and have a monologue on how their characters feel while they do during a mission. For public speaking, you will be able to practice your deduction and persuasion skills to hide your true self if you are the enemy and persuade others to help accomplish your goal of winning. Choose your words wisely and focus on body language to keep your objectives alive. If you are teaching history, science, or ELA, you could do a lesson on the history of zombies and how the term zombie developed. You can even discuss the possibility of the zombie apocalypse and what may it look like during our pandemic times. And then after all that knowledge building, have your participants dive into the zombie apocalypse head first and write a reflection on how the experience was playing. There are so many things you can do, but so little time. But hopefully these tips will help you begin your journey of bringing the education into your gaming experience. Thank you for tuning in to Lydia's Educational Game Corner. Till next time, happy learning and happy gaming. Space. It's a lot of things to a lot of people, from the final frontier, to disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence, to, well, vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big. But as a child of the 70s, for me, space is science and excitement, and, well, entertaining. 
From Star Trek reruns to the original Carl Sagan Cosmos to Space Hop, the solar system trivia game that I loved. So it probably should come as no surprise that I love space as a theme. But it has to be the right kind of space theme for me, and that's mainly grounded in space fact. So the moment I heard that Vita Lacerda was making one of those giant overproduced Eagle Griffin games about colonizing Mars, well, I was absolutely on board. And on Mars, we are leading companies that are competing and yet working together to build a self-sustaining colony on Mars through worker placement. The beautiful, gorgeous, amazing Ian O'Toole on Mars board itself is split into two halves, well, roughly two halves. The orbital space station half is for obtaining blueprints, learning technology, research and development, and getting supplies. While the colony side, you are constructing the colony, moving your bots and rovers, welcoming ships with new workers and bots, hiring scientists, and or taking lucrative contracts, and that's not even to mention the executive actions you can take before or after your turn. I know, I know, it sounds like a lot, and trust me, it is a lot, so I'm not going to go into a ton of rules, because the teach itself is long and difficult. On Mars is the Ouroboros of board games, but I do want to give you the feel of the game, so I'll aim for the middle as best I can. The worker placement portion of On Mars is straightforward. You place one of your colonists on a spot to take the action, if necessary. If other people are already there, you must move colonists to your work area or spend crystals per other player in that location. Further, some locations allow you to boost the action to get more benefit by moving workers into your work area. I see actions themselves that are so interconnected. You have to build shelters to make room for your people and storage space. Build other buildings to advance the LSS, then you can upgrade those buildings if you have blueprints, and use those upgraded buildings to build or upgrade more if you have scientists or welcome ships. But only if you had room for those new colonists and did you have the technology or supplies to build. Further, all the buildings are tied together in that you need supplies of the prior building type to build the next type. But the main action of On Mars is building, I think. So many things trigger off of it, like building upgrades, using scientists, and ostensibly we are there to build the LSS, except that doesn't trigger the end game, as that's usually caused by completing the randomly assigned goals, which could be anything from taking blueprints to driving your rover. You get points from building the LSS from both placing progress cubes and building connected systems of the same building types, but also from variably placed scoring tiles for each building type. So you're encouraged to build, but you have to do other things first before you build to really get points for that building. Further, there are other ways to get resources like collecting tiles with your rover or from the supply depot. So hypothetically, what if you skipped building the LSS and just upgraded other people's buildings, got scientists that scored points for anyone's buildings, went back and forth from Mars to orbit collecting resources and putting those on contracts, and advanced tech? Well, that's a valid path to scoring a lot of points as well. While I wouldn't consider On Mars a quote-unquote sandbox game, there are certainly many paths one can take. My path is building because I'm a person who likes to look at a board at the end of the game and say, yeah, I built that. But you can't do or build everything. There just isn't enough time, and you physically aren't positioned to do it based on building restrictions. So look at where you are, figure out what you can reasonably do, and do it well. On Mars is a very unforgiving game. You can box yourself into a corner where you can't really do anything useful for a turn or two. There are first colonists, cards, and tiles that are supposed to help with your first few games, but they just give you goals and don't lay out a path to achieve them. It's not as brutal as Food Chain Magnate, but you must be thinking ahead. In addition to competitive play, On Mars has a solo game where you're playing against Lacerda. Well, against a set of objectives in the rulebook, Lacerda just gets in your way. Solo is functional, the cards certainly affect what you're trying to do and advance the end game, but they certainly don't affect the goals in the rulebook too much. As a matter of fact, it's fairly easy to forget the objectives in the rulebook, which may or may not be easier or harder based on where you start and where the tech tiles end up. 
It's an interesting experience, but not my favorite solo experience to date, especially as it makes an already fiddly game even more fiddly now that you don't have anyone else to remind you that you've forgotten to say get crystals for completing one of the goal actions. All that said, I'm personally looking forward to the announced Surviving Mars Cooperative expansion. I've always had trouble understanding why in the various Mars-related games we're competing to build up Mars. Maybe I've watched too much Star Trek, but I'd like to hope that by the time we're really building out a Mars colony that humanity would have gotten its collective shit together. But maybe that's just me. I look forward to working together with my fellow humans, or non-humans, it's the future, whatever, to build a new utopian society. Mars is a harsh, desolate, cold place, and if you mess up, you will die. And to a certain extent, our Mars is no different. Or with just 38% of Earth's gravity, our Mars has set you up to rocket into the thin atmosphere as you science the shit out of the planet and prove to the universe that you are indeed the best chief astronaut. If you have further questions or comments about the game, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at mrisley underscore ut. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here talking about Azul Summer Pavilion. This is the third installment in Michael Kiesling's Azul series, published by Plan B Games under their Next Move imprint. The three games are themed around the work of Portuguese artisans working on projects for the royal family. This 2019 game has two to four players working to create the magnificent Summer Pavilion that was commissioned by King Manuel I in the 16th century as a way to honor many of his predecessors. This is a project which unfortunately never came to fruition after the king died, but at least in the world of the game, construction has begun. Both Mason and Look have talked about the original Zool on this podcast, in episodes 24 and 50 respectively, so if you want to know more about the original game, you have some pretty good options. Summer Pavilion uses almost the same method for selecting tiles as the other game, but the placement and scoring phases differ dramatically. So just as in original Azul, a number of factory displays are set out, depending on player count, and upon each are placed four randomly drawn tiles. Players will take turns to select a factory from which to take all tiles of one color, sending the rest into a central area. Alternately, players can take a color of tile from those central discards, and the first player to choose from the center gets to become the new first player. However, they will also take negative points for doing so. The main difference in Summer Pavilion's tile selection, that also affects its placement, is that a different color of tile is designated as being wild each round. Players cannot choose to take wild tiles, but if there are wild tiles in the factory from which they're taking tiles, then they get to take one of those as well. And if the location that they're choosing from only has wild tiles, well then they only get to take a single tile. Another key difference in Summer Pavilion is that all tile placement takes place as part of its own phase, so until that point players simply place newly acquired tiles next to their boards. Once placement begins, players take turns adding to their board and scoring points. To place, players must have tiles of the right color equal to the number shown in the spot they're trying to fill, using wild tiles as needed to meet the requirement. One tile will be placed into the star pattern on the player's board, while the rest are discarded into a tower to wait until the drawback needs refilling. The player's scores depending on whether the new tile is next to any others, and if they manage to surround an icon with tiles, well in Summer Pavilion that prompts a bonus, allowing them to grab tiles from a separate display and add them to their available pool. The shared bonus display forces players to consider timing of placements. The choice of waiting to get more points for adjacency versus surrounding an icon quickly to get a desirable towel from the display adds a back and forth with the rest of the players at the game and prevents the placement phase from being as much of a solitaire experience as the previous game. It also makes grabbing that start player tile often extremely enticing. Once they've placed everything they can or want to, players also get to reserve tiles in this game. 
keeping up to four unplaced tiles into the next round, while losing a point for any additional tiles they're forced to discard. Then the factories are refilled, the round marker moves to designate a new wild color, and tile selection begins. Summer Pavilion takes place over a set number of rounds, so players are no longer able to rush the game by completing the right arrangement of tiles to end it. After the sixth round plays out, the game simply ends, and endgame scoring is awarded to determine the final winner. I like playing Summer Pavilion and the original game equally. The second title in the series, Sintra, is a game I've only played a few times, so I can't really speak about with any certainty, though I do remember enjoying it. Production values here are as beautiful as can be expected from the series, and the tiles and boards are double-coded for legibility, which I appreciate. I like having a designated tower for discarded tiles, as it certainly makes refilling the bag a lot easier than using the box lid. Plus, there's that satisfying noise of tiles dropping into the tower, which is kind of hard to beat. Now, my collection still includes the original Azul along with this one, and they are different enough for me to keep both around, despite their providing a very similar overall experience, that of a quick-playing, puzzly game that can be enjoyed by those both new and experienced in the hobby. The scoring in Summer Pavilion is much easier to teach, which I've found increases player comfort at the table, and reduces the number of requests for a second pair of eyes on the calculations, so I am tempted to use Summer Pavilion as my introduction to the series from now on, even if the wild tiles and the bonus display do add some extra things for players to consider. If you haven't tried Azul Summer Pavilion, and either enjoyed or have been interested in the original, then I'd certainly give it a try, because it's unlikely to disappoint. We find it a great after-dinner weeknight game, but it also has a place on dedicated game nights, and that's a versatility I appreciate. So until next time, I'm off to see what else is lurking forgotten on the quarantined game shelf, but feel free to drop me a note and let me know your favorite flavor of Azul. You can find me on Twitter at Roof, that's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I used to say I was introduced to the worker placement mechanism through Lords of Waterdeep. It wasn't until a few years ago I realized that assumption wasn't entirely true. Years before I played Lords of Waterdeep, one of my early post-settlers purchases introduced me to dice placement, a mechanism I didn't even mentally associate with worker placement until long after I'd begun building a massive game library and internalizing the huge array of granular classifications offered by the hobby. I have a long, wonderful history with Kingsburg a game now wholly ancient by the standards of the hype-obsessed, FOMO-afflicted bundles of metastasized acquisition disorder who make up hobby board gaming's core audience. It was the first game I spent time and energy to do a massive, all-encompassing DIY upgrade to, creating my own personal one-of-a-kind deluxe edition. It's not just responsible for my love of dice placement, but also for launching my hobby within a hobby of customizing my games. Released in 2007 by Stratalibri and Fantasy Flight Games, Kingsburg is a resource management Euro game with a healthy splash of randomness designed by Andrea Cirvesio and Luca Iannaco. Iannaco honestly hasn't done much since, but Cirvesio's ludology includes the widely well-regarded Signori, another masterpiece of dice placement, and the criminally overlooked Hyperborea, a fantastic bag builder that unfortunately released the same year as Orleans. Kingsburg, at its core, is about as straightforward a Euro management game as exists. Everyone rolls their pool of dice at the start of the round and uses them to influence an array of 18 nobles represented by worker placement spaces. Each noble corresponds to a number, and in order to place on their space, players need to use dice whose total value equals the noble's number. Each noble grants victory points, effects, or different resources, 
with players using said resources to construct buildings on their personal board to earn victory points and ongoing abilities. The game plays over five rounds, or years, each divided into four seasons. Three seasons each year will be productive, allowing players to gather resources and build buildings, while the winter of each year involves defending from monsters of increasing strength who, if left unhandled, can raise a player's buildings, setting them back a step. And that's pretty much it. Like I said, it's fairly straightforward, especially by the standards of newer Euros released in Kingsburg's Wake. That said, according to BGG, it's also the first dice placement game. Being the first of its kind, Kingsburg was the game which taught designers a few lessons about how to implement dice placement, first and foremost about mitigating randomness. Low rolls in Kingsburg are objectively worse than high, with higher numbered spaces granting better benefits and very little ability to mitigate a bad throw of the dice. This can lead to Kingsburg's least appealing issue. A string of really good rolls can create a runaway leader, while a string of bad rolls can make you feel like Artax sinking into the Swamp of Sadness. How's that for a dated reference, kiddos? Beyond that aspect, Kingsburg is, frankly, a blast. It's not as flashy or dynamic as newer designs, but it offers enough strategic meat to chew on for its roughly 90-minute runtime splashed with the highs and lows of chucking a handful of dice and trying to suss out just how bad you're screwed. The original version of Kingsburg fell just short of greatness until the expansion to Forger Realm introduced some extra setup randomness for players, a few interesting asymmetric twists, and, most importantly, the soldier tokens. In the original game, at the end of every year, players would roll a die and add that number to their military might when fighting the winter monsters, which felt like just one too many random bits. The soldier tokens replace this mechanism with a deterministic choice, making that section of the game feel more intriguing than punishing. Thankfully, the newest printings of Kingsburg, now published by Z-Man Games, include what was previously considered the essential expansion content in the base box, making for a complete and engagingly modular experience for a measly 50 bucks. Including that content is a fantastic choice that enhances an already enjoyable, if somewhat dated, game. I'm not as positive, however, about the new version's artwork by Mario Barbati, David Corsi, and Roberto Pituru. When the license changed hands, Mad for Game Style's original art and designs stayed with Fantasy Flight, much to the game's detriment in my opinion. The new box art replaces the original's vibrant blues and snow-covered landscape with bog-standard brown, and while the new board is probably a little more functionally clear than the old one, it's also a lot more staid and bland. That said, there's nothing overtly wrong with the new design, I just prefer the original, and your tastes might not align with mine. If you can handle the swings, and don't get bent out of shape by unfortunate die rolls, Kingsburg is a fantastic entry into the Eurogame canon, and the new version is a content-heavy value. I don't expect it to be among everyone's favorites like it is mine, though. Mike once told me, and I quote, If I ever want to play Kingsburg again, I have a bag of dice and an Excel spreadsheet. That's a little harsh. It's funny, but harsh. And I think there's still a lot of fun to be had with the progenitor of dice placement. My name is Luke, and you can find pictures of my custom Kingsburg Deluxe Edition on Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website, PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Thanks for listening to The 5 by Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website, 5bygames.com. If you like what you hear on the 5 by and want to support our work, visit patreon.com slash 5 games Thank you. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.